So as you might have noticed, uh, a frog jumped down my throat. <coughs> this happened yesterday. I feel totally fine, so I don't think I'm contagious. But uh, bear with me as I seek to speak. That happens sometimes. <coughs> Let's, uh, we're going to continue our journey through the book of Acts. So let's, uh, before we do that, let's go to the word in prayer. To work, let's go to the Lord in prayer. How about that? Dear Father, I thank you so much for this time that we can gather as your people, as we can gather as your church. Lord, I pray for this time that we, as we open up your word, that you can bring it to life in our in our heart, that we can respond to you with all of our life. Lord, we love you, we seek you, and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> so there are literally hundreds of documentaries you can watch either on Netflix or Hulu or other streaming devices and services. It seems like they're all the rage. I don't know if anyone here has caught the the documentary bug who likes to sit and watch all these different kind of things, these backstories, these details about crimes or strange events or interesting people, but they seem to be all the rage. They, they're exploding. You can find so many about almost any topic you want to wish. You can see these documentaries as they explore this. And they're really popular. And if you don't like them, guess what? I think you're in the minority because if people didn't like them, they wouldn't be making so many of them. But they're everywhere. I think that's because people like to be in the know. They want to know the backstory. They want to know the ins and outs. They want to see behind a curtain, so to speak, and see why things happen how they happen or why people are how they are. They want to know just what's going on, maybe at a deeper level. And this is not new. Before documentaries, we had these things called books uh, progress through life and why these notable historical political big wigs were known and how did they get to where they were. I, love, I actually really like biographies and I have lots of biographies about these big um, men of the faith and women of the faith who, who made a name for them and rocked history, made a name for themselves, they rocked history because you want to know like how, what makes them different. How has God used them, and how did God prepare them to be in this situation? It's really interesting. But we can start thinking, you know, bigwigs and names get, uh, big people get books written for them, but other people, you know, what makes them who they are? The missionary who leaves his home and his job or, or prospects and goes and travels across the seas to preach the gospel, what makes a missionary do that? Someone who goes into ministry and, and forfeits other other um, uh, avenues of success to preach the gospel. What makes someone do that? It's not money. Any missionary will tell you that. It's not fame because most of them don't get books written about them. And only a few people might know their name. So what makes someone be so devoted to the gospel that they would do that? Well, we know the answer. It's the gospel itself. And when the gospel, some are called to those more extreme measures where they, they move in those mighty ways. And that's what we see in Acts chapter 9. We see Paul, Saul, 
Last week we talked and saw how Saul was confronted face to face with Jesus on the road to Damascus and how he was converted, how he who used to be a, a persecutor of the, Jew, of the Christians now becomes a Christian himself. And now in this next part of chapter 9, we see the ramifications, the implications, the aftermath of this conversion. We see how God grabs him and changes him. We actually now start seeing the making of a missionary, of what makes a person now become famous because we write so much of the New Testament, what makes him what he is. And I believe we start seeing this in this next part of Acts chapter 9. So if you have your Bibles, <coughs> you can open up to Acts chapter 9, and we'll start up, pick up where we left off, which is in verse, um, yeah, I'm looking at, there it is, I got really confused right there. In 19, well, we'll pick up 19, really you can go back to 18, this is Paul, a whole lot, this is Saul, he comes to know Christ, he has this, uh, this experience, uh, he's prayed for, scales fall out of his eyes, and it says immediately, something like scales fell out of his eyes, this is 18, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus. And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in a synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem for those who called upon his name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. And when many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to him how on the road he had seen the Lord, who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were So the church throughout all Judea, in Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit it multiplied what do we see from this passage <clears throat> about Saul well I think we see this simple fact the gospel transforms lives that might seem so simple you're like well that doesn't even need to be stated that might be like, oh, duh, of course it does. But that is what it is showing. The gospel transforms lives. When the gospel of Jesus Christ, the fact that the, God, the Son of God came down to earth, loved us so much that he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but gave that up, taking on the form of a servant, took on human likeness, was born as a helpless babe, lived as one of us, but did it perfectly so that he could stand in our place righteously before God and taking our sin upon himself on that cross, that gospel, that the fact that he did not stay dead but rose in conquering sin, death, and the devil, that gospel, when it grabs hold of you, guess what? 
It transforms your life. For you cannot stay the same. It changes who you are. That might be good. <clears throat> it might make this shorter. Let's not hear too many amens. The gospel transforms lives. It's that simple fact that we see here. We see how Saul was transformed. Just look at this text and you see it. Saul was transformed. Last week we saw this dramatic conversion, how Jesus showed up, knocked him on his butt. It changed his life forever. But now we see this aftermath of what that means that he saw Jesus. He was transformed. How do we know he was transformed? He immediately starts to preach Christ in all the synagogues. The guy who came up to Damascus to throw Christians into jail now preached Christ in the Jewish synagogues. The guy who was rallying the Jewish people against this church now stands up and says, Jesus is Lord. He was changed. He was transformed because <coughs> he immediately starts preaching. And people are amazed. They should be amazed. We, they see this transform, transformation. And they couldn't explain it from their own understanding. They couldn't understand how... I think sometimes we're so used to this story or who, knowing who Paul was that we kind of downplay this transformation. But this was dramatic. This was a guy who was persecuting Christians. This was a guy who stood and held the cloaks of the men who killed Stephen, giving his approval of their action. This was a guy that was carrying written documents from the chief priests, allowing him to find Christians, bind them in chains, and take them to trial. And now he's preaching Christ. He was transformed. I think a modern analogy might help us of how radical this transformation is. So if you follow the news, if you know what's going on in the world, you know that just like two weeks ago there was another vi video released of an Egyptian Christian who was executed by Isla Islamic extremists. This is not new, and sadly it probably won't be the last one. But the Egyptian Christians, the Coptic Christians, are really persecuted by Is Islamic extremists. And they released these videos. Saul's conversion to preach Christ would be like if that guy who just killed that Christian on the beach showed stream it was. And we pray that that would happen, for that is the power of the gospel. I mean, I would pray that that Islamic extremist would come to know who Christ is and would do that. Because it would be as extreme as that, as this guy who once persecuted Christians now preaches the gospel, proclaiming the truth of who Jesus is. But he didn't just proclaim the gospel. He was confounding the Jews. Think about this. This was Saul. As he describes himself later, he was the Pharisee of Pharisees. He was hot stuff. He had learned under the feet of some of the greatest Pharisees there were. He was a biblical scholar. He had it going on. He was the straight-A student. He probably was the winner of the debate team. 
This was, he, he was an up-and-comer in, in the Jewish faith. And so what does he do now when he is changed, when he's transformed? He starts preaching, because that's what he's designed to do, and he confounds the Jews. Because he was probably the one who gave the Jews all the objections and articulated so well why Christ was not the Christ. But now this one who used to deny it and probably could articulate why the Jews thought he was not the Christ now is proclaiming him. He knew their argument now that he had seen Christ. And so he was used by God for the expansion of the church. It's interesting. If you just read Acts... You, uh, you read it and you think after this Damascus where he confounds the Jews <clears throat> that the next thing comes immediately after it. It says, when many, days had paced, uh, when, he, when many days had passed, in verse 23, and we think that happens right after verse 22. But when you read how Saul, Paul, talks about his conversion experience, we see a more integrated picture. And so when we read that in Galatians, <clears throat> that's not it. When we read that in Galatians 1, this is Saul talking about himself. And he says, And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of our fathers. But when he who set me apart before I was born, who called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me, in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away to Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then, after three years, days, when we integrate these accounts, we see actually there's a gap in Luke's storytelling between verse 22 and verse 23. That Paul was converted. He preached the gospel. Then for some reason, we don't know why, he goes to Arabia for three years. It's not recorded in Acts, but we see how he says himself that after he comes to know Christ, he leaves and goes to Arabia. And we don't know what he did there. It's not recorded for us. And so we doubt he preached the gospel. But for three years, Saul was off the map. And I can't help but think how great that truly is. Why? Listen to his own words in Galatians chapter 1, verse 14, about how he was uh, uh, advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. He's talking about how he was hot stuff, how he was the, 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 the big up-and-coming name in Judaism, how he was making a name for himself among the Pharisees. And God says, I'm grabbing you, I'm going to use you, but for three years, no one is going to hear your name. I can't help but think that after this little, this little brag about who Saul is, God says, I'm going to use you, but first you must know this. You, once was making a name for yourself, are now going to make my name great. And you're going to take three years to learn this. I think God was preparing Saul, preparing him, quieting him, growing him, making it clear of his new mission to exalt this gospel. And we see that the gospel transforms life, not just that he turns and starts preaching Christ, but now it transforms him so much that he takes 
He's set back and does not advance himself, but now comes on the scene and advances Christ and only him. The gospel transforms lives. And the same is true for us. Now, I'm willing to bet we, won't, we did not have or will not have the same dramatic conversions experience as Saul. You might, but I'm willing to bet you haven't. But does not change the f- nature of what happened. For the, the, the person who grew up in church and comes to Christ in that gradual process where even they can't even look back and pinpoint a time has had the same dramatic experience that, Paul, that Saul had. For when God grabs hold of you, it's the same every time. You were a sinner, and now you're made a saint. You were astray from God, and he's brought you home. So dramatic, and you're still transformed. <coughs> because you were once a sinner, and now you're brought into the family of God. And all of us, once we come to know Christ, are designed, crafted, and mandated to proclaim the Gospels and the glories of Christ. We're commanded to be proclaimers if you know Christ. Saul was a trained theologian. He was a trained speaker. And so, of course, when God grabbed hold of him, that is how he was going to proclaim. He was going to do it publicly. He was going to do it boldly. He was going to do it in the synagogues. He was using how God had crafted him to do that. That God used his past to make him to be the missionary and the preacher that he was going to be. And it's the same for every single one of us. That does not mean we're going to have all be standing up and proclaiming publicly the glories of Christ to big crowds, but it does mean that your past, who you are, how God has wired you, are going to be used by God to proclaim the glories of Christ. You might be wired to be really good one-on-one with people and develop those relationships. Guess what? When you're transformed by the gospel, that means God's going to use that to proclaim the glories of Christ. You might be really good to use, but it's going to use that so that you proclaim the glories of Christ. It looks different for each person, but the fundamental truth is that if we know the gospel, if we know Jesus, we're transformed by that gospel. And we start proclaiming Christ. (coughs) We become gospel proclaimers. And when we do, the focus is taken off of us. Just like I would, I would argue that the focus all was taken off of Paul when he went away for three years. So the focus is taken off of us, and we focus on Christ. doesn't mean you can't advance in your career. doesn't mean you can't c- continue to do what is needed to be done. But it does mean that the priorities are reshifted, and you see what you're supposed to be doing, and you glorify Christ no matter what you're doing. Because the gospel transforms lives. And people respond to this transformation. When we read this text, we actually see a few different responses. We see twice that people try to kill Paul. That's the first response we see. That he preaches the Gospels, and what is the response of the Jewish people? Kill him! It's a nice response, isn't it? The of the gospel. 
This response looks at what Paul is proclaiming, what we would argue the whole Bible is proclaiming, and denies it. The Jews are saying Jesus is not Christ. The Jews were saying he is not the Messiah. The Jews are saying this is a false way to live, so much so that it must be eradicated. Kill this man. This is a response that actually so many people run in today. Maybe not to the extreme kill them, though it happens. But this denial of the gospel, when you come up with someone and you proclaim who Christ is and people deny who he is, this is the same response. That people who are in need of being saved deny the lifesaver who is Christ. That people deny him because they do not want to recognize their need of salvation. They don't want to recognize how lowly they are compared to the glorious God. They don't want to recognize that they are sinful and they have no hope on their own. They don't want to recognize that they are helpless without Jesus. They don't want to acknowledge this. And so instead of acknowledging it, what do they do? They deny the whole thing. They deny the gospel. And so what is our hope? When you proclaim the gospel and you come face to face with a God, when people deny the gospel, that is truly still our hope, for that is what we see in Saul. That the power of life transformation still resides even when all hope was lost. It can take Paul's, Saul's, and turn them into Christians. It can take someone who is killing Christians and turn them into a fellow brother or sister in Christ. And so what is our hope is the fact that they, that Christ will actually appear to them, show themselves to them through the word, through someone else's proclamation of the gospel, and they will be ever changed because of it. Because the gospel transforms lives. <clears throat> we also see another response. A response from believers. Saul goes to Jerusalem. And he seeks to enter the Christian church, fellowship with believers, uh, worship, because he knew that a Christian needed to be with his fellow Christians. That's a whole other sermon. I'm not going to give that one. But Saul knew that as a Christian, he comes to Jerusalem. What does he need to do? He needs to be with his brothers and sisters. But yet they're scared. And they don't want Saul to meet with them. We can criticize them a lot. Called that guy off to jail. This is the guy who was persecuting our family. This was the guy who killed Stephen. Yeah, he might not have thrown the stone, but he stood over it. He presided over it. He gave his approval of it. And now he wants to meet with us? Come on, guys. Isn't this a ploy? He's still going to rat us. us. He's trying to find out where we meet. He's trying to dig us out and expose us before the chief priests. They were scared, but at the heart of their fear, at the heart of their response of, to Saul is a doubting of the gospel. Because when he says, I have been changed by Jesus Christ, they were, they were somehow like, yeah, we doubt it. And by doing that, they doubt the gospel. And what happens when we see someone have that trans? Um, dramatic transformation and we're like yeah i don't know you're doubting the gospel can actually change people in dramatic ways 
And so they were doubting <coughs> the gospel. They were doubting the power it had to transform someone. And I, you know, in both of these, I just spilled water, everyone. In both of these, what happens is the gospel is thought lightly of. That people think they know what it is. They put it in the box. They sit over there, and they expect it to work how they expect it to work. Unbelievers operate on that all the time. But the sad thing is we so often as Christians operate that way, way as well. We doubt the power of the gospel. That when we go out and proclaim, if we start doubting, man, I don't think this is going to be worthwhile. When we see someone who's in downs and outs and they need the gospel and we question, well, will that really have an effect? We're doubting the power of the gospel. But Paul, Saul, knows that power because he experiences it. And that's why he says in Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the power of the gospel because it's the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for Gentile. He knew the power because he experienced it. Guess what? If you call Christ your Lord, you have experienced the power of the gospel. So why do we doubt it? Why do we doubt that people need to hear it? Why do we doubt it and maybe it keeps us from sharing it? We don't need to doubt the power of the gospel because that is the power that God has to save people. The power that God uses to transform lives and bring people to know who he is and respond to him and worship him. Because the gospel transforms lives. His power. Which is why Barnabas is so cool in the story. Because he reminds the the disciples of the power of the gospel. We need Barnabas's you can say that, Barnabas is this, in the church and around us to remind us constantly of the gospel. We'll look in the story and we see that Barnabas was introduced to us back in Acts 4, verses 36 through 37. You can read that. But this is the guy who apparently was the first one that stepped up to the plate. His name was Joseph, but they called him Barnabas, which means uh, son of encouragement. And so he obviously was an encouraging person. And he stepped up to the plate, and he sold his property and gave it to the church. He was a wealthy guy, obviously, because he had property to sell, and he gave it to the church. And we see how he starts uh, acting with the disciples there, taking care of them. And so now this same guy, Barnabas, somehow meets Saul while he's looking for the church and not being able to find it in Jerusalem. We don't know how that happened, but let's use some sanctified imagination here. I imagine Saul is looking everywhere for the church. The church probably was still in hiding because it was being persecuted. He's trying to find them. No one wants to tell where they're meeting. No one's going to tell them what house they're going to meet at. A dejected, sad Saul sitting in the marketplace. I just want to be with my brothers and sisters. (laughs) But they're doubting it. And here comes Barnabas. He knows who Saul is. He no doubt, he was part of the early church. He no doubt saw Stephen get stoned. And Saul standing there. He knows who he is. He probably was on that high list of being hauled up before the priests because he's part of the church. <coughs> and yet he goes and he sits with Saul. And we see later that he presents Saul's case before the disciples. So he knew Saul's story, which means he sat there and said, Saul. Tell me about yourself. 
And Saul tells him his experience and how he was converted and how he saw Jesus and how he was preaching the gospel in Damascus. And Barnabas says, come with me. If we read that text, it actually, you could literally say, Barnabas grabbed Paul by the hand and led him to disciples. You can see him going probably to his home church in Jerusalem, taking Saul in. Imagine the gasp. People are like, he brought Saul in here. What are you doing, Barnabas? Why are you doing this? And Barnabas pleads on his behalf. Look at him. This is what happened to him. Our Lord showed up to him. This is our brother in Christ. He has been transformed by the gospel. And they welcome him and they greet him because Barnabas reminded them of the gospel. That the gospel transforms lives. And we need Barnabases in our lives. We need Barnabases in the church. For it's so easy as we operate as a church, or we so easy as we operate as Christians, that we forget the gospel and somehow think that we, because we're in church, or we because we know God, or we because we know Christ, somehow are better than other people, somehow have it going on, that they don't have it going on, and that forgets the gospel. That gives the church a bad name. That's why people think church people are holier than thou, because they forget the gospel. And we need Barnabas to come along and say, you are no better than the person on the street. You are no better than the person who denies God. You have been saved by grace and grace alone. He has pulled you from the pit. It's him who has done it. And we praise God because of it, that we remember the gospel. That's why we need Barnabas and we need to preach the gospel to ourselves as well. That we need to quit beating ourselves up and hanging up on sin that we've asked for, that we stand before his eyes through Jesus Christ and we remember the gospel and know who we are in him. It's where we need the gospel when we look at others because it makes us not be judgmental. That when we look at others and we remember the gospel, we say, there, go I, but for the grace of Christ. And we can love them and we can uh, uh, minister to them and help them in their need, that we need the gospel because we need to remember the gospel transforms lives. As we see again and again through this text, the gospel transforms lives. So what do we do with that? Well, very simple. We need to know the gospel. We need to know Jesus Christ. We need to trust in the gospel. We need to trust in its power and how it transforms us. So we need to know it personally, meaning, do you believe? We need to know who Jesus is and how he has saved us. Do we need, we don't need to deny the gospel, we actually believe it and incorporate it in our lives and know the truth of it and let it transform us. We need to look to Christ and see who he is and believe it. We need to personally do that. Every gospel transform us. Have we let the gospel grab every single bit of who we are, even those dark corners that we do not want to give to God, even those things we want to hide from everybody? Have we let God grab all of that and let him transform us to be who we are designed to be in him? 
Have we let the gospel transform us? When we don't, when we hide, when we don't want to expose that sin, or we don't want to do what we know we're supposed to do, we are doubting the gospel. And we do that for so many reasons, because we don't want to be exposed, because we've had bad experiences for how people look at us now. But when we know the gospel, and when I say we, not just individually, but as a church, know the gospel, we can actually be open with one another. And say, I struggle, I sin, I mess up. And guess what? That does not affect my standing before Christ because Christ has paid it all. And we know that. And so we can accept grace from our fellow Christians and we can extend grace to our fellow Christians. We actually can become a community that actually can stumble together as we seek to follow our Lord when we don't doubt the gospel. And then finally, we need to know it personally, which makes us ask, are we being used by God in whatever ways and how he has designed us to be made to make it clear who Christ is with those who need to hear it? It'll look different for different people, but all of us are made to declare the gospel. So we know the gospel personally, but we also know the gospel, and how it affects others. That means we actually believe, <coughs> we believe that people can be changed. We believe that when the gospel grabs hold of people, it can take someone who we would not like, but yet brings them into the family, and we can call them brother or sister in Christ. That we don't doubt the gospel, that when we can see people on the down out and see people we do not, would not associate otherwise, we actually do not doubt the gospel, but claim the gospel and know that Christ can grab hold of them and change them. And that we see our brothers and sisters in Christ as that, brothers and sisters. That it fundamentally re or reorders and, re and changes our identity so much so that we can see one another as family in Christ. We didn't get to choose our family growing up. Bro pulls people in that some of the times the people we least expect into that. And that means that we pray and we live in such a way that we believe the gospel is active in each other's lives. Not just in how we treat each other, but when we go out and share, we actually believe that God is going to use our proclamation of the gospel, our sharing of the truth, to change lives in real ways. That somehow, God has made a plan to include us if I was God, I would not have included me, but he is God, and he gets to pick, and he includes all of us who call upon his name through Jesus Christ to be part of his mission, part of his plan, to extend the church, to expand his kingdom, to proclaim the gospels. He uses us to be his mouthpieces, his ambassadors, his pleasing aroma, so that people can hear what we say, and somehow the Holy Spirit can work through that and bring people to know who Christ is. And so we pray for that plan to be real in our lives as we seek to proclaim the gospel. Because the gospel 
the truth of Jesus Christ? Just take a look at how this passage ends. The church, when it grasps the fullness, the truthfulness of the power of the gospel, it multiplies. I love how it, how it talks about this church. It says, they all walked in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, and it multiplied. They walked in the fear of the Lord. That, that phrase, they walked in this allness. They walked in this truth that God is God and we're not God. That God is the holy judge. That God is the one who rules. That this God is the Almighty sitting on his throne. And so we are rightfully trembling in awe before him. And he gets to command my life. He gets to say where I go. He gets to do what he wants to do. And I can't question it. This is that God. And so he walked in the sphere of the Lord. But they also walked in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit comes and says, this God, this mighty God, the all-powerful ruler, guess what? He is your loving Father. He is the one who's moving heaven and earth so that you grow to become more and more like Christ. He is the one that is, is going to bring you through whatever you're going through to the end he wants you. He's bringing you home. The comfort of the Holy Spirit says, he is your Abba Father, He is your loving Dad. He is pulling you and has a plan for you and is going to complete the work He started in you. And so they walked in this truth, the gospel. And what happens? It multiplies. The church grows. If we want to be part of God's mission to expand the church, to expand His kingdom, we walk in these realities of who God is and how he has saved us through his son. And we know that and we know the gospel if we proclaim the gospel and the church will multiply. Why? Because the gospel transforms lives. Join me in prayer. Dear Father, thank you so much for who you are. Thank you for your word that we can know it, we can read it, we can respond to it. Thank you for how you have moved through our lives, that we can know you. Lord, I pray for each one of us here as we process what this means, as we think about how the gospel has transformed us. I just pray that we can be encouraged and comforted of how your love how first and foremost the gospel starts with that, your love of how it has saved us, how you have saved us through Jesus Christ. And then in response to that, in response to this new identity, in response to your glories, your truth to everyone who can hear us, in whatever way we need to. And Lord, we pray all these things in Jesus' name.